Okay, uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, I'm Roger Pilon, I'm the director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies. I also wanna welcome those of you who may be seeing us on Cato's live streaming. We're here uh, this afternoon to discuss harnessing the debt ceiling debate to limit government, what can be done to check and balance Washington. Um, last Sunday, uh, March 15th, the statutory debt ceiling kicked in again after a year of unlimited federal borrowing that's brought our national debt to over $18 trillion. This being Washington, no one here believes that the debt ceiling will be maintained, and that creates huge problems for those of us trying to limit government, much less return it to its constitutional bounds. As Cato's um, Nicole Kading has recently written at Cato at Liberty, this is just the first of several fiscal deadlines before Congress this year. On April 1st, for example, Medicare's so-called doc fix expires. If Congress doesn't act, reimbursements to doctors under Medicare would be cut by 20%. Congress is expected to pass a short-term patch the 18th time it will have done so in 13 years. Then by April 15th, the House and Senate are supposed to pass the annual budget resolution. On May 31st, the Highway Trust Fund becomes insolvent. On June 30th, the charter for the Export-Import Bank expires, uh, which uh, will leave General Electric and Boeing uh, loath to see it, and so on down the line. But our question today is much broader. What, as a practical matter, can we do to hold back the growth of the federal government when its unlimited borrowing capacity creates the illusion of limitless, cost-free public goods and services? Our speakers today will offer a variety of solutions, ranging from restoring the moral and social underpinnings of a free society to leveraging trends in existing Supreme Court precedent to amending the U.S. Constitution using the Compact for a Balanced Budget. I'll introduce each speaker before he speaks, uh, starting with uh, Ankar Gale, um, Gote, Gate, there, I think I got it right, Ankar Gate, uh, who is a senior fellow and uh, chief content officer at the Ayn Rand Institute. He's the Institute's resident expert on objectivism and serves as its senior trainer and editor. He's taught philosophy for over 10 years at the Institute's Objectivist uh, Academic Center. Uh, Dr. Gatte is a contributing author to a number of books on Ayn Rand's philosophy and fiction. His op-eds have appeared in venues that range across the ideological spectrum from Huffington Post to CNN.com, FoxNews.com, BusinessWeek.com, and, and elsewhere. Uh, he's a Canadian citizen, uh, studied economics and philosophy as an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto, and worked in the financial industry prior to joining ARI. He received his doctorate in philosophy in 1998 from the University of Calgary. Would you please welcome Ankar Gatte. Thank you very much, Roger, and thank you for coming. Uh, and welcome to the live streamers, if we have some. 
Um, as, as Roger said, the panel's going to focus from different angles on the issue of debt deficits um, and them spinning out of control. And the, I'm approaching it from a philosophical perspective, particularly from a moral perspective. Um, and I want to focus on the drive, what, what I think is driving the increasing debt and deficits, which is increasing spending. Uh, and that's the, what is going to be my focus. Um, and particularly what I want to focus on, so I've called this challenging the entitlement mentality. So it's the dramatic upswing in entitlement spending. So here's, I mean, you can have many different graphs. Here's one. Um, this is from Mercatus. Uh, the, in the, the growth of mandatory spending here is the entitlement spending. It's the green. The growth from 1970 to 2012, and then the projection into 2040, that's both spending and then interest on the debt. Um, but it, it, it accounts for a growing and growing share of total federal spending. Um, and it's part of all these unfunded liabilities, all these promises have, that have been made. <clears throat> um, and the, this, I think, is driven not by politicians. As the, as the primary factor. They might be the immediate factor that is increasing spending, but they're not the primary factor. The, so I have it as, is the problem politicians or us, we the people? And I think the problem definitely is we the people. So this is a 2013 uh, Pew Research uh, survey. And it's surveying people, and they want to reduce the deficit. And how are you going to do it? Are you going to do it through spending cuts or tax increases? 19% say do it only through spending cuts. Of those who say do it both, 54% say do it mostly spending cuts. So if you put these together, you get 73% you get say we need to cut the deficit, do it by all spending cuts or mostly spending cuts. But then this is the same survey. You ask them, okay, so what spending are we going to cut? <clears throat> and here's a long list of options that they were given. There's not one option here that gets more than 50%. The highest is 48% aid to world's needy. <clears throat> Everything else, they don't want to make any spending cuts at all. The next highest one is 34% would make some spending cuts. <clears throat> which means 66% would not make any spending cuts. And you go through the line for Medicare, Social Security, health care, the things driving entitlement spending, and they don't want to, the majority don't want to make any cuts. And I think one of the main reasons they don't want to make any cuts is they think it would be wrong to make cuts to these. When you get to the level of specific programs, they think it would be wrong to make cuts to those programs. And that, I think, means they think it would be morally wrong. So you have, this is a way you could put this, is what you have today that is very different than you had at the founding of America. You have an entitlement mentality. <clears throat> and people remark on this. And I, I was at, uh, I was just speaking at the Public Choice Society conference uh, in, in San Antonio. And I went to one of the panels um, where the focus was on debt and deficits. And they were t talking about, yeah, the norms have really changed of what people think today versus what they thought 200 years ago. <clears throat> and, but there was a weird, like, why have they changed? 
So where does this entitlement mentality come from? And my basic answer is it comes from an entitlement morality. <clears throat> um, and if you're really to make a dent into people's view of should we spend on program X, Y, or Z, should we spend on Social Security, Medicare, healthcare, you need to challenge the entitlement mentality. But that means you need to challenge entitlement morality. <clears throat> and basically, my view is entitlement morality is conventional morality. It's the morality each and every one of us has been taught, <clears throat> whether it's in grammar school, in church, in the universities. It's all over the place today. And it's very different than what it was at the founding of America. Just to give some examples from across the board. So to call it an entitlement morality, it's a morality that says it's legitimate. Indeed, it's morally right that people get something for nothing. That's what it means to have an entitlement. You're entitled to something that you don't have to pay for. And this is what morality teaches in one way or another to everybody. You are your brother's keeper. Well, the brother being kept doesn't have to pay for what he's getting. You're to give, he's to receive, and he doesn't have to pay. <clears throat> he's entitled to it. Adam Smith. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we can expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love. <clears throat> so on this view, Benevolence and humanity, those are the moral terms. If the baker was benevolent, if he was humane, he would give you bread for free. He wouldn't look to his own interest. He wouldn't look to his own gain. That's an entitlement mentality on the part of the customer who's not a customer anymore because he doesn't have to pay for it. And he shouldn't have to pay for it if the baker was doing what was moral. Smith, a classical liberal, another classical liberal. Does anyone know who this is? All honor to those who can abnegate for themselves the personal enjoyment of life when by such renunciation they contribute worthily to increase the amount of happiness in the world. So again, the people receiving it, do they have to pay for it? No. You're to give up, abnegate, renounce for the sake of someone else. That of someone else is entitled to what he gets without having to pay for it. John Stuart Mill. <clears throat> From each, I mean, this is the, the clearest summary of the whole viewpoint, but it's the same viewpoint that you find in all these moral slogans. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. <clears throat> the baker has the ability. You have the need. He should give you his bread. End of story. That's what's moral. So unless you're willing to, and this is what people have been taught. I mean, it's common if you're in engineering school, law school, and so on. The two people who will tell, they'll teach you about morality is Mill and Kant. And they will tell you both exactly this, that morality is about getting something for nothing. It's an entitlement morality. And unless one is willing to challenge this, I don't think you can change the norms that exist in today's society. And without changing them, it is yeah, we want all these programs, and we're willing to go with all this increased spending, which is going to drive debt 
and deficits. And you need to have courage here. <clears throat> and it's moral courage that you have to, to challenge conventional morality and to say, it's all wrong. <clears throat> and the idea of producing this kind of entitlement morality, if that's what a conventional morality pr is producing, it's unjust and it's evil. And you have to have the willingness, again, the moral willingness to say, no, I'm pursuing my own life and happiness. <clears throat> as the Declaration says, <clears throat> and as the, when you look into the Enlightenment, that was a moral view that has been eclipsed now by the entitlement morality. And I think it's equally important <clears throat> to morally shame people who are on the entitlement morality. That doesn't mean they're monsters, but that their viewpoint is morally suspect and really suspect. <clears throat> the idea that failures, needs, suffering, pain, illness gives you a claim on other people's lives, that really has to be challenged as outrageous. <clears throat> that it doesn't give you. You're not entitled. It's not an entitlement. <clears throat> and unless one is willing to do that, I don't think you can get moral change. <clears throat> it's not the only thing that's needed but it is needed. So here's, for instance, a Tea Party, and you, you saw these kinds of signs all over the Tea Party. Hands off my Medicare. And there has to be a translation in the culture, and people have to be willing to morally challenge this and say what this amounts to saying is, hands off your life and happiness, they're mine. <clears throat> and unless you're willing to do that, I don't think you can dislodge this entitlement mentality and I don't think we'll see any significant decrease in spending. And what I'm recommending here, you can think in effect, to, to take something uh, that's been all over the news, the 50th anniversary Selma. <clears throat> the left is much better than the right in regard to this, of having moral crusades. And people will say, you know, it's impossible to change people's moral views. I mean, if that's what the civil rights had, if that was their attitude, towards the, a, a significant amount of racism that existed in America at the time. Well, you can't change people's moral views. That's a long-term, incredibly difficult, near impossible project. <clears throat> I think there's many aspects of American culture where it's, what you get is, no, that's not true. You can do it, but you have to have the courage that those people had, which is to challenge deep down that your whole moral viewpoint is wrong, and the whole moral viewpoint of treating blacks as second-class citizens in the South is wrong and has to be challenged at root. And I think one has to do the same with entitlement morality and so the entitlement mentality that it produces. Okay, let me stop there. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ankar. We're now going to hear from uh, Cato's own Nelia Shapiro, who is a senior fellow in constitutional studies uh, at uh, our Center for Constitutional Studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, before joining Cato, he was a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues, and he practiced international political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. <clears throat> Before that, um, he um, clerked for Judge uh, E. Grady Jolly of the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. 
Um, Ilya is the co-author most recently of Religious Liberties for Corporations, question mark, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act, and the Constitution, which was just published by Paul Grave Pivot. He has uh, appeared in many uh, leading uh, journals, the Wall Street Journal, uh, New York Times, and elsewhere. He's provided testimony for, to Congress and state legislatures, and as coordinator of Cato's Amicus Brief Program, he's filed more than 100 Friend of the Court briefs uh, before the Supreme Court. Uh, he lectures widely on behalf of the Federalist Society and other groups. He has his BA from Princeton University, master's from London School of Economics, and his law degree from the University of Chicago. Please welcome uh, Ilya Shapiro. Thanks very much, Roger. Those of you who are standing, there's one seat right here and one seat right here. I, th I think those are the only open ones. Feel free to, it won't bother me if you come and, and, and take them. Um, it's, uh, it's heartening to see uh, Ankar here. I'm, I'm Canadian uh, as well. Uh, and I think that's, that's telling, Nick, that you're outnumbered by, uh, although I, I became a citizen, so I'm only half a foreigner, I guess, anymore. But uh, you know, like it just goes to show that, that like most immigrants, uh, we do a job that native-born Americans won't, and that's uh, defending the Constitution. But look, defending the Constitution takes a lot more than bringing cases before the Supreme Court and making eloquent arguments to try to get uh, the judiciary uh, to roll back the part of this uh, entitlement explosion that's unconstitutional, meaning most of it. Um, the Supreme Court, the judiciary, is not a self-starting institution. It doesn't just reach out and say that piece of legislation is unconstitutional or that contract is invalid. Uh, people have to bring actual cases and controversies towards it. It's a very slow, relatively inefficient uh, process. And moreover, it took decades to get to where we are now in terms of the deviation of constitutional law from the Constitution and it will take decades at best to go back. Even stopping the expansion of the constitutional level is uh, a challenge uh, and a question mark. But luckily, uh, we have more options than just hoping that judges toss us a bone every now and again, or otherwise writing law review articles and op-eds. We can also amend the Constitution. The framers provided a method of constitutional amendment that's rather easy to understand. You don't have to have a law degree or uh, spend time uh, in constitutional studies to understand how our constitution is to be amended. You can get out your, your pocket constitutions and, and follow along. Get the Cato pocket constitution. It's a twofer. You buy the constitution, you get a declaration of independence for free. Although this is the spe special limited edition Shapiro wedding constitution with our names and the date on the back. I'm, Afraid I can't offer you that, but um, my wife's a very tolerant woman, as you can tell. Uh, Article 5 is what you look at for the amendment process. Um, you know, it hasn't been easy to execute, at least since the days of the New Deal, when FDR and the New Deal Congress began de facto amending the Constitution without bothering to amend it de jure. Uh, recall FDR would write, say, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and say, don't let any constitutional qualms, no matter how reasonable, stop you from approving this legislation. And so we went down the road of uh, Sobrosa kind of uh, implicitly amending the Constitution without going through the Article 5 process. But what Article 5 says is that an amendment can be sent to the states for ratification 
upon approval by two-thirds of both houses of Congress. In the alternative, two-thirds of state legislatures can call for an amendment convention. Either way, the resulting proposed amendments can be ratified, uh, are ratified only when three-quarters of the states take effect. So this is basic fourth grade civics, or at least, you know, I kind of had to teach this myself because, as I said, I went to school uh, in Canada. But it's a very simple problem, a very short article. Um, it's, it's right there. Now, hand in hand with the recent reaction to uh, some of the excesses of the federal government and of the executive branch in particular, we've seen a resurgence in limited government ideas. And so various amendments have been proposed, whether by Tea Party activists or politicians or academics. Uh, policy analysts, Randy Barnett, one of Cato's senior fellows, who's a Georgetown law professor, has proposed a repeal amendment, that is, that would allow states to repeal federal law if two-thirds of them vote that way, or indeed a, a federalism bill of rights, a whole set of amendments uh, to rebalance uh, powers and, and limit the federal government. Um, the balanced budget amendment in various forms, various guises, uh, is another. When it comes to these sorts of amendments, uh, I, I'm generally an all-of-the-above all kind of guy. I don't spend that much time um, pushing anyone because it's, it's hard to do at the end of the day politically. Uh, and also, really, the only amendment we need is at the end of every clause or provision of the Constitution to add, and we mean it. Um, that'll, that'll take care of, of most of this. But Congress is unlikely to ever amass a two-thirds majority in favor of limiting its own power. Because remember, that's the first part of Article 5. If both houses of Congress, two-thirds vote to propose an amendment. That's unlikely to happen. So the state-called convention, amendment convention, looks pretty attractive. The problem is that many conservatives and libertarians, uh, those who are also tend to be the ones in favor of limiting federal power, uh, are also the ones who are afraid of a so-called runaway convention with amendments that would eviscerate the Constitution in a way that Congress and the courts haven't yet managed. So insert your own nightmare scenario, uh, nationalization of industry, requiring gay marriage for everyone, prohibition of private schools, uh, Keith Olbermann as NFL commissioner for life, you know, whatever your, your nightmare scenario might be. You name it, someone has invoked it to argue against an amendment convention. These fears have always seemed overblown to me. I mean, if the American people can propose and ratify amendments that constitutionalize socialism and replace our Constitution with the 1978 USSR Constitution or, or whatever, uh, well, then we've lost the political culture already and might as well go seasteading in Galt's Gulch. Uh, but, you know, now I have uh, backup uh, for my instincts. Nick will talk about the compact uh, idea, the compact uh, uh, for America, and, and um, that's just one example, to my mind, the best one of uh, why an amendment convention uh, fears about runaway conventions and other sorts of fears are, uh, are overblown. Uh, uh, when Nick was at the Goldwater Water Institute in Arizona, he commissioned a series of fantastic uh, novel original research on Article 5, uh, written by Rob Nadelson, a retired professor from the University of Montana Law School. Um, you can look those up on Goldwater's website. But here are the key points to think about in terms of an amendment convention. This is a state-driven amendment process. So first, an amendment convention is the ultimate guarantor of state sovereignty. This is not 
Congress uh, imposing something on the states. Uh, history and law support states limiting the convention to specific topics, and delegates of the convention are bound as agents of the states to stay within the scope of the applications that trigger it. And again, 38 states have to ratify whatever the convention generates as a proposed amendment. So states, meaning those uh, bodies of government that are closer to the people, initiate the process. They control its subjects matter, subject matter, uh, and they ratify the product. And this uh, concept, this amendments convention, is not radical. Whoever your favorite founder is, uh, Washington, Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton, they all agree that states should use the Article V process to correct errors in the Constitution or rein in the federal government or correct some uh, error that develops in the future that they could not foretell. Madison even intervened during the nullification debates of the 1830s to chide the states that they should be invoking the Article V process to regain control over the federal government. I talk about these sorts of issues in South Carolina from time to time. In fact, I'm going to be there tomorrow speaking on a, on a different issue. But I always feel like the ghost of John C. Calhoun is over my shoulder. And uh, I'm sorry, there is no such thing as nullification. Without amending the Constitution, a state cannot simply pass a law saying federal law uh, is no good here. Now, federal government can't compel state uh, officials to enforce federal law, that's called commandeering, and that's unconstitutional. Uh, but states can't simply nullify the operation of a properly enacted uh, federal law. The next point is that the, con the convention simply will not run away. Any proposed amendment has to be ratified by 38 states. During the Constitutional Convention of 1787 itself, which some people point to, well, it happened once. Well, first point was uh, that was actually a, a convention convened by the power, the sovereign power of the people, and it was uh, the, the law at the time was, were the Articles of Confederation. This was not uh, a constitutional sort of action. So sure, uh, you know, this sort of convention could go beyond its means in the same, to the same extent that we could have revolution generally. Um, but acting under the Constitution, you really can't have one. The founders rejected language that would have allowed Article V to establish a foundational convention uh, substituting language that requires any convention to operate within existing constitutional limits. And finally, there's nothing to lose from an amendments convention, because no matter which party controls Congress, the status quo is a runaway federal government. Um, Nick, again, uh, will uh, we'll talk about uh, both the compact. Uh, the, the interstate compact, by the way, is, is not a novel idea either. There are hundreds of them out there. Typically, states agree on how to share water resources or uh, exchange uh, 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 fugitives, uh, bring them back to justice, so we don't have to go through some sort of formal Interpol process and all of these complicated uh, bells and whistles for extraterritorial uh, capture and extradition of uh, um, uh, of fugitive uh, criminals and, and, and so forth, or the take the New York, New Jersey Port Authority, if you fly into the airports in, in that area, in the greater New York City area, uh, or, or take boats there, go to the bus terminal, that's operated by a compact, a special interstate commission. That's all that, 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 that this would be. And the payload of this elegant solution um, is the balanced budget amendment, which uh, I guess I'll end where Ankar started with some polling data um, it really shouldn't be that controversial. More than six in 10 voters, this is based on a survey taken two years ago, uh, favor the idea of a balanced budget amendment, 24% oppose. Uh, and further, when you get down to specifics, 
uh, let's say, a provision that requires a roll call vote of Congress when a tax increase is proposed. That's supported by 81% of the people, 11% opposed. Limiting the amount of money the federal government can borrow, the debt ceiling, 75% support, 20% opposed. Prohibiting the federal government from spending more than it takes in each year, 72% support. Requiring the president to make spending cuts to remain within the debt limit, impound money when the debt limit uh, uh, is approached, 72% support. And cutting spending first before raising taxes or borrowing more money if the federal government spends more than it takes in, 71% support. So again, uh, these fiscally sound measures, you don't even have to necessarily affect uh, a sea change in the entitlement morality, uh, if at least these poll numbers are to be believed, uh, and if you design the balanced budget uh, and, and put it in the sort of vehicle um, uh, that people can get behind at the state level. So I'll leave it there, and I'll, I'll let Nick explain um, his innovative solution that he came up with to uh, build on uh, this research uh, about the amendment process. Uh, and uh, the, the popular discontent with the runaway federal government. Thanks. Well, thank you, Ilya. And now to hear more specifically about an amendment to harness the debt ceiling debate uh, to limited government, we're going to hear from Nick Dranius, who is the president and executive director of Compact for America Educational Foundation. Uh, the Compact for America initiative uses a formal interstate agreement to advance one or more constitutional amendments in a fraction of the time and without any of the legitimate questions raised by other approaches. Its first iteration involves a powerful federal balanced budget amendment. Nick uh, previously served as general counsel and constitutional policy director for the Goldwater Institute in Arizona, where he held the Clarence J. and Catherine P. Duncan chair and directed the Joseph and Dorothy Donnelly Moeller Center. Dranius uh, led the Goldwater Institute's successful challenge to Arizona's system of government campaign financing to the Supreme Court. Uh, he also serves as a constitutional scholar, um, authoring scholarly articles dealing with a wide spectrum of issues in constitution and constitutional and regulatory policy. Uh, Nick's latest works are In Defense of Private Civic Engagement, which is forthcoming from the Heartland Institute, and introducing Article 5 2.0, also from the Heartland Institute and in conjunction with the Federalist Society. Prior thereto, uh, Nick uh, was an attorney with the Institute for Justice for three years and an attorney in private practice in Chicago for eight years. He's a graduate of Boston University and the Loyola University School of Law. Please welcome Nick Dranius. Well, I have a PowerPoint. I'm hoping uh, it's loaded. Uh, hey, there we go. First of all, folks, thank you so much for being here. It's my great honor to be at the Cato Institute and, and to be among this panel. Let me emphasize that uh, although we do bear much of the blame as a culture and as a people for the government that we currently have, we, don't blame all, we, we can't blame ourselves entirely. The structure of our federal government 
as a result of an error in the Constitution, that of giving the federal government unlimited borrowing capacity, has worked to corrupt and undermine the American culture and the American sense of morality that we had from the beginning. And it, although I agree with Ankar that morality is indeed a, a central issue that, that we need to address, we also have to recognize that the world that the government puts us in and forces us to live by influences what moralities succeed and prosper and what mor mor moralities tend to fail. Uh, it makes it easier for the entitlement mentality to outcompete the non-entitlement mentality if the federal government has this magical ability to give everyone what they want. And as I'll demonstrate in this presentation, uh, the root source of this sort of magical government model, uh, the, the model of government that can deliver anything anyone wants at no immediate cost, is really uh, sourced in the lack of any limit in the federal government's borrowing capacity, something that is so radical that, it, that only the tiniest minority of states have no constitutional limit on, on borrowing capacity because they've seen the consequences of giving such unlimited borrowing capacity to, to elected officials. To borrow a phrase from P.J. O'Rourke, it's like handing car keys and a, a fifth of whiskey to a teenager. Uh, that being said, the Compact for America effort is advancing at this time the Compact for a Balanced Budget. It's been endorsed by a number of esteemed individuals in our movement, including not just Ilya, but also George Will, Judge Napolitano. Uh, most recently, we've gotten endorsements from Alan West. Uh, even the vehicle itself has been endorsed by progressive legal scholar Lawrence Lessig. Uh, the idea of using an agreement among the states to simplify, regularize, give certainty to the amendment process by convention is something that finds itself in uh, a wide spectrum of, of hands in, in it with a great deal of support. And in fact, we have 16 think tanks now that have lent some degree of vetting or educational support to the effort, including not only the Goldwater Institute, but the Heartland Institute and the Federalist Society and most recently Texas Public Policy Center. So the question is, we, we have Article 5, right? It's, it's easy. You can read it. it you need two-thirds of the states to apply to Congress for a convention. Convention is called by Congress. The convention proposes an amendment. Congress refers it back out for ratification, and three-fourths of the states ratify. Why bother with a compact? Why put it all into an agreement? Well, the three essential reasons are laid out before you. Because, folks, we don't have time. We don't have time to mess around with a process that involves six legislative stages and over 100 moving legislative parts. The national debt right now is completely out of control. We are within a decade of transforming our fiscal policy into the mirror image of a place like Venezuela. And the reason why is the boomer generation is all retiring en masse. By the most conservative estimates, the present value of un unfunded entitlement programs is $80 trillion, and by Lawrence Kotlikoff, $210 trillion. These are symptoms of the underlying cause of a limitless federal credit card. If that limitless federal credit card did not exist, elected officials could not get away with politically promising anything under the sun. So how do we get the speed that a compact delivers? First of all, let's look at the real situation in the trajectory of debt. The federal debt, whether you measure it in real terms in blue or in nominal terms, 
is increasing at an exponential rate. This is not self-limiting. There is clearly a system breakdown. If you look at it in terms of percentages of GDP, gross federal debt is where we were in 1942 fighting a world war. And the difference is, you see the downward slope after, after the World War II ended? We're not the only economy that's going to be left standing. Even more so, we've mortgaged much of the productive future through these un unfunded entitlement programs. And then if you're looking for a moral problem with our spiraling debt, think about who's being stuck with the bill. Our country was founded in large part on the principle of no taxation without representation. What is debt on this scale if it's to be repaid? And who are we socking it to? Our kids and their kids. This is a moral outrage, and it's got to stop. As we've heard, Article 5 provides the way. Now, what I'd like to highlight, as I have here, that it's based on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states and that Congress shall call a convention. These words are pregnant with meaning. A lot of folks say, well, the, the, uh, Article 5 doesn't provide any details on the process. Not true. If you interpret these words in light of the time, this had a clear public meaning that the founders expressed over and over and over again. But first, let's talk about the problem of speed. Under the current process, without a compact, you have to have 34 states pass a resolution. That's the application. You got to hope somebody's going to go to the convention. That requires at least a, a quorum of 26 states. So 26 states have to pass a law sending delegates. You got to hope Congress does what it should do, which is shall call the convention. That requires the mechanism of a resolution. You got to hope the convention meets and doesn't deadlock. It actually generates something. Assuming that happens, then Congress then has the duty to send out that amendment for ratification, it has to choose either by legislation or by in-state convention, and then you've got to get 38 states to ratify it. This is a legitimate problem. Did you know that Patrick Henry opposed the ratification of the Constitution in large part of the Virginia Convention because he thought Article 5 was a fraud? That even with only 13 states, there was no way this process could be navigated? What about with 50? I mean, this is a real problem. Now, did the founders say in response to Patrick Henry, yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, we're trying to teach you a lesson. You don't really want to use this. No, the founders said that that's just not reasonable to think the states couldn't use this effectively because the states would agree. They would concur in the applications they wanted, both on the front end and the back end. George Nicholas actually used those words. The founders anticipated the coordination and agreement among the states as to how this process would play out, even in an era of horse-drawn carriage. They were anticipating the compact approach, and here's what the compact for a balanced budget looks like. Using an agreement in advance, encapsulated in one bill, joined by the number needed for ratification, you map out, at the state level, everything involved in the amendment process. On the Congress side, 
You include in the resolution everything that Congress does in the process, both the call and the selection of legislative ratification. When those two things happen, it sets in motion inexorably a convention limited by the, the compact to 24 hours and an up or down vote on a pre-specified contemplated amendment. You compress in six you compress 100 pieces of legislation and adjust 39. 38 bills in the states, one congressional resolution. You, can compre you compress six legislative stages into three. In principle, you reduce the time investment from, from at least five years, and frankly, we've been waiting 225 years, to one session year. You can identify every political actor in every session that you need in one session year in principle. Folks, this is the speed we need to get the job done. Now, it's not just speed that the compact approach brings. You promised me one of those cars when we passed it. <laughs> when we get to 38. And by the way, we're already up to three, and we're anticipating as many as 10 this session. Uh, North Dakota is likely to come next. We're looking to Arkansas, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Michigan. This is happening in real life right now. But let me just have you look under the hood real quick. You have the state compact. That's the one bill. You have the congressional resolution. In the compact, you specify the amendment. In the compact, you create a commission to handle logistics. By the way, it exists right now. Go to balancedbudgetcompact.org. In the compact, you have the application to Congress. You use a conditional enactment that has that application go live only when 38 states join the compact. Not 34, not two-thirds, because there's no point in doing this process if you can't get it done. We use the ratification number to activate the application through a conditional enactment. When the application goes live, in the congressional resolution, the call for the convention in accordance with Congress goes live. When that goes live, the delegate appointment, the default setting being the governor, goes live. When the convention, within that moment of, ha once the call goes out, the convention is automatically going to be triggered in Dallas, Texas in six weeks. The first order of business specified in the compact is to vote rules into place, limiting it to 24 hours and an up or down vote on that amendment. In addition, there are scope limitations that restrict all member states, 38 at least, from ratifying anything other than that amendment. Assuming that amendment is voted out of the convention, in the congressional resolution, the second half of it, it triggers through a conditional enactment the selection of legislative ratification. When that's triggered in the compact that's already been passed, the ratification that the state's committed to at the, at the front end then goes live. Done. Two overarching pieces of legislation, the entire process known in advance, it transforms the Article 5 process into the rough equivalent of a ballot measure for governors, state legislators, and Congress. So, what's the next process we gotta deal with? That's certainty. Without a compact, you don't know anything other than a topic in most cases. You don't know the amendment. In the compact, you have a specified balanced budget amendment. You can read it today. If you get the materials out there, you can check it out. This balanced budget amendment poll tests at simple majority levels for Democrats and each of its policy components and super majority levels for everyone else. It consists of three essential components. One is a debt limit that can't be gamed because it's very simple to control spending. You limit government to cash on hand. 
That's not gameable unless you're going to lie about what cash you have on hand and ask people not to cash your checks, and that doesn't last forever. You limit the borrowing capacity to an absolute dollar amount line of credit, just like you have on your credit card. Any flexibility in that line of credit is not left in the hands of the debt addict, like Congress currently has. You bring in external discipline, just like you seek from your school boards and your cities when you have referendums and bond issuances. In this case, you give the states, a majority of state legislatures, the authority to approve or disapprove any increase in that initially fixed debt limit. Now, folks, the reason why this is important is that borrowing capacity is the most fundamental source of the growth of the federal government. And it's not just me saying this. Just about 10 years into this entire experiment, this guy, I like to call him TJ, observed that he would rely on one amendment to return the Constitution as of 1798 to its original founding principles, and that is taking away the power of borrowing. And here's the dynamic that TJ recognized. Imagine if you could go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, buy whatever you want, and send the bill not only to the next table, but to the guy sitting at the next table 20 years from now. That is the federal government without a limit on its borrowing capacity. And my point is that it doesn't matter what you have in your parchment barrier. Politically, there is no way anyone can outcompete someone who's promising anything their constituents want at no immediate cost, courtesy of unlimited borrowing capacity. There's no way you can outcompete that guy over time with a demand that they follow the original meaning of the Constitution. Because you know what? The American people are not, and never have been, and never will be 100% angels, or even mostly angels, and neither will government be. If you allow the illusion of unlimited resources to be created by those in government to give out anything that anyone wants at no immediate cost in a democratically organized form of government, that will win. It will win over the long run, and you will see the trajectory that we've seen in the growth of the federal government. And it doesn't matter if you start with a solid moral foundation, because that foundation will erode gradually and then exponentially. So let's go back to the point about how you can target the process. Remember I promised you that you can look at Article 5 and you can see that it's fully targetable if you look at the meaning of the words? The key word to look at is application. Application is the key. Because the version of Article 5 that existed before the final version, immediately before the final version, had Congress proposing amendments on application of two-thirds of the legislature. Where were the amendments coming from? The application was specifying the amendments in the next to final version of Article 5. On George Mason's objection to Congress having that degree of leverage, they replaced Congress with a convention for proposing amendments. They didn't change the meaning of application. There is no reason in the world to think that the application would cease providing the specific substance of the amendments to be provided. The convention was merely an instrumentality that George Mason felt would be better under the control of the states than Congress itself. Don't believe it from basic drafting history? This is what, in Federalist 43, James Madison said. Article 5 equally enables the general and the state governments to originate the amendment of errors. 
the only point of origination that the states clearly textually control is the application. Don't think that's enough evidence? How about Federal State 85, Alexander Hamilton? Every amendment would be a single proposition brought forth singly. Nine states, then two-thirds, the number needed for an application would affect alterations. Nine states would affect subsequent amendment by setting on foot the measure. We can rely on state legislatures to erect barriers against the encroachment of the national authority. The only thing that the state legislature controls independently of Congress is the application. Still not convinced? How about George Washington in his letter to, Tom, to John Armstrong, who was afraid of the new constitution because it centralized too much power? George Washington says, don't worry, nine states can get whatever amendments they want. That's the two-thirds hurdle triggering that, that the application marshals. So folks, if you look at the original meaning, and by the way, that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you've got questions and we had time, I could go through another half dozen examples of this. The bottom line is the word application is the central point of Article 5. The application was meant to control the process. The convention was just an instrumentality. There is nothing magical or mystical about organizing a convention for proposing amendments if you do it right, if you target the application like the compact does. So lastly, let me just emphasize the compact goes overboard and adds many elements of safety. We make it so safe it's dangerous to the status quo. First of all, what really keeps the political class or anyone inside the law most of the time? Simply having clear rules. Not your kid? Not yet, but no. Simply having clear, kit, clear rules is enough to keep people deterred from behaving bad, badly in most cases. Clear rules, clear accountabilities. The compact does that. The other thing that we do is, what keeps people honest in politics to the extent they're honest in politics? What is it that, that, that motivates politicians to stay true to their word? It's their reputation, their stock in trade. We have the compact sunset April 12, 2021, so that every reputation, every social network bound up in that compact is likely to be live and still something of value that people want to preserve. In addition to that, we add a ton of kill switches to make sure the process doesn't go off track. Most importantly, automatically any delegate that doesn't go to the convention and vote rules into place requiring a 24-hour vote up or down on that amendment is immediately disqualified along with everyone else who's representing their state and their state themselves. In addition to that, as I said before, there's an explicit prohibition on any state ratifying or participating in a convention that would, that would propose any amendment other than what's contemplated. And then lastly, at the suggestion of Andy Schlafly, Phyllis's son, we provide for a venue selection clause placing any litigation in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, U.S. Circuit, a pretty good place, or state, Texas State Courts, which has a very fine Supreme Court. Folks, this is so safe that if we don't have the courage to advance this process given the gains that it has, then we have fallen well short of what it takes to maintain a republic. I mean, think about it. Would the founders, were the founders asking for a guarantee at Concord? Did they want to know they were going to cross the river to make sure they would win? Would they not act unless they knew they would beat King George? I mean, our country was built on courage that this is a tiny fraction of. Surely we can summon that degree of courage. So folks, we, we need to get this done. The process is here. The policy product is here. 
Already we've got three states that have joined it. We need 35 more. We need Congress to move forward. We can fix the national debt and then even more importantly, create a beachhead, prove a concept that will rebalance power between the states and the federal government and strike at the ultimate root cause of the growth of the federal government, which is its monopoly on effectively all forms of governance in this country. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Nick. All right, now it's time to um, open the floor up to questions from you before we break for lunch. Let's start, uh, wait for the microphone to get to you. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation you may have and to whom your question is directed. We'll start with the gentleman way in the back there. I don't, think the, I don't think the microphone is on. Can you flip the switch there? There we go. And speak um, right. Yes. My name is Steve Hank, and I have no affiliation. Just a retired Cato groupie. Um, boy, it's coming. The noise is coming back. Well, I'm doing wrong. Okay. Um, as to the cause of the size of of government, I th I th I think you all missed what I think is, is the largest contributor. And that is the, and I want to ask you whether you, you think it is, the income tax, the progressive income tax, enables people to vote for all this entitlement knowing that essentially it's not coming out of their pocket. Since the income tax is largely paid by only a small percentage of the, you know, the public, less than only 47% of people don't even pay an income tax in this country. And so it's easy to be in favor of entitlements knowing that it doesn't cost you anything. And uh, so what do you think of that as a sort of a factor that you didn't... Is there any p particular person you've directed your question to? Um, no. Okay, maldistribution of taxation. Who would like to speak? I'll, I'll just say, that I forget whether it was Jefferson or Franklin. One of the framing era um, statesmen said that uh, the, the time when a, when a nation tips over into tyranny is when uh, a majority of uh, the people start voting themselves goodies out of the treasury. Uh, I don't know if we've reached that tip tipping point because there are other sources of revenue, other taxes than simply the federal income tax. Um, but uh, that, that certainly uh, is uh, an issue. Originally, the income tax was supposed to be a, effectively a luxury tax. You know, only the top 1% or 5% were supposed to be subject to it. Uh, and, of course, it's grown. Uh, as, as a matter of policy, I think I probably would favor some sort of uh, sales or uh, consumption tax, uh, but I wouldn't put that in until you repealed the income tax amendment because otherwise we're likely to be in, end up with two. To both. Could I uh, briefly address that? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. But the, you know, the, the, the question is, isn't the income tax a direct tax on people's income that allows redistributionism, allows the 51% to tax the 49%, is not that a big factor in the growth of the federal government? Yes. But is it as big and uncontrollable a factor as unlimited borrowing capacity? Clearly not, because there is a political cost immediately felt to anyone who raises taxes. There is not necessarily any political cost when you can borrow money from our kids 
get all the benefits of that expenditure, grow the size of government, and nobody feels any pain. So as between the two evils, from my perspective, and I think, frankly think also from the words of Thomas Jefferson, the, the greater point of control to restrain the federal government is clearly at the level of the borrowing capacity of the federal government. Okay, gentleman right here. Steve Simpson, sorry, uh, Ayn Rand Institute. Um, I read a very interesting article once called A Court Without a Compass, which uh, if uh, Roger Pallon would like. I believe, I recognize that title, yes. Sorry, he wrote it. Uh, But the basic gist of the article was that our Supreme Court has lost confidence in the founding philosophy and has gone astray as a result in the last hundred years because of that. Uh, So my question, and I'd like all of you to comment on this, is what happens when this gets to the courts? I mean, it seems inevitable to me, Nick, uh, interesting though your uh, argument is, and I think uh, you, you have a lot of good support for the argument about how the term application would or should be interpreted, but you and I won't ultimately determine that. The Supreme Court will. And uh, to, to get back to a point that Ankar made, uh, it strikes me that the court is as much uh, informed by the kind of entitlement morality or philosophy as the, as the people are. You could call it the progressive philosophy, and uh, that explains a whole lot about the direction of the Supreme Court over the last century. So what happens when we get this, this issue before the Supreme Court? If I may pick up, first of all, on that uh, point, Steve, and thank you for the reference. Uh, there was a time in the country when uh, there was a constitutional ethos, not only on the part of the court, but on the part of the political branches as well. Uh, Madison objected to a bill, a welfare bill in 1794, arising from the House floor to say that he could not undertake to lay his finger on the passage of the Constitution that authorized the expenditure of the taxpayers on this particular welfare provision. Uh, 100 years after the Constitution was written, Grover Cleveland, as president, vetoed a bill for the relief of farmers suffering from a drought in Texas, saying he could find no authorization for this expenditure in the Constitution. But by the time we got to the New Deal, we had Roosevelt, as um, Ilya said, um, saying that uh, I hope you'll not allow any reservations uh, about the constitutionality of the bill that was currently at issue to stand in the way of its passage. And Rexford Tugwell, one of the principal architects of the New Deal, reflecting on his handiwork some 30 years later, said that in order to get our programs through, we had to engage in tortured interpretations of a document that was intended to prevent them. And so they knew during the New Deal exactly what they were doing. That kind of constitutional ethos is not with us today. And so we do have your very live question If this gets before the court, as virtually everything sooner or later does, what is there that will prevent a court not suffering from this kind of constitutional ethos uh, from having its way with it? Uh, Nick, do you have some thoughts along those lines? Absolutely. First of all, avoid the court. Uh, No, I mean that seriously. We've designed the compact so that nothing becomes substantively effective in a way that could trigger a case in controversy until you're so far along the line politically that it could basically be only six weeks before you get a proposed amendment. 
that first of all keeps the it, it, and we could talk about that offline in complete detail over how that happens but basically the compact is designed to avoid any significant case in controversy uh, from any vantage point in the current case law until you've already pretty much masked massive political will in short order and the courts generally s don't stand in the way of that freight train um, secondly we have the the Schlafly provision the uh, well-chosen legal venue uh, and that's fairly common in compacts to have, like in contracts, to have, have form selection. Um, you know, thir thirdly, I, I think, you know, what we also tried to do is leverage the existing case law supporting interstate compacts. There are hundreds of interstate compacts, most of which serve center-left aims. In order for this compact to be penetrated and completely obliterate our effort, there is no question they would have to undermine some of the very case law that sustains some of their anti-constitutionalist projects. And so we're trying to make it so that it's not advantageous as much as possible, not advantageous to anyone who's an anti-constitutionalist to undermine this effort. And here's the last pitch of that. You know, this is a dual-use weapon. It's like a ballot measure. And there's good ballot measures and there's bad ballot measures. And, you know, we have folks that don't agree with us on most policy issues in our advisory council that obviously are there to help us, I mean, to, to help themselves learn about this vehicle. So the vehicle has a dual use. And it's, you know, the, the frank, you know, basic fact here is there's a sort of mutually assured destruction. If they wipe out this vehicle, prevent it from proving its concept, then they're never going to get to use it. Uh, so we try to combine all those different factors to align incentives to get to the job that we need to get done. And then we'll fight out the next battle the next day. Okay, uh, the gentleman right here. Uh, hi, I'm Bob Brownholder. I'm also head of Justice and Affiliation. Uh, I like your morality argument, but when I have discussions on this Um, I would make at least two points so that, one, these programs are deliberately designed to be deceptive. So they're designed to make the recipient think like, I'm getting what I paid in. But that's, if you actually think of what the program is, take Social Security, it's a little simpler than Medicare. The first recipients paid almost nothing in and collected benefits monthly till death. They got way more, and you can look, and they have it even on the Social Security site of the first recipient, received so much more than what they paid in. So that, I think that is one point. It's just not true when you look historic, and it couldn't be true when you look historically uh, at the start of the programs. Two, they're not saving the programs. This is not, you're not investing in a 401k or something like that. It's money taxed and spent, and it's a pro I mean, what unfunded liabilities mean, it's a promise to now tax other people, which means to loot the money of other productive people, take it from them, and give it to you, so that you signed up for a program that took money from innocent people to give it to you, <clears throat> sorry, to give it to other people. And if you signed up for it thinking this is a good program, you're one of the victims of that. But you, that doesn't entitle you to then go victimize other people. 
and you have to make it in terms of a moral argument. What they're basically saying is, I submitted to taxes, so now you have to submit to taxes. And I don't think that follows. <clears throat> Some have called it a Ponzi scheme. I wouldn't, but that's... Uh, uh, let's see. The, uh, the lady way in the back there. Thank you. My name is Li Yang. Uh, I think the way you talk about this is uh, try to achieve some kind of balanced budget. But I don't think you address the issues, what caused the problem of uh, uh, big spending, whether by the government or whether there's abuse or whether there's any waste, any, whether there's really not just that, but really it's unlawful conduct by the government and by the private sectors. They really rob our government resources and the private resources. That's why we cause the poverty and the social, political, election problem, media problem. So unless you address these type of issues, I don't think the way you propose is, if not just improper or inadequate, for one thing is uh, if this project is so easy, and uh, just like legislation now, they think everything is so easy, they can do all kind of bad legislation, so they can benefit a diverse resource to benefit a few, whether there's a corporation or there's just abusers, or whether there's their network. I call it rubberism. So I just wonder if you can really address the issues targeted on correction of the problem rather than changing the, this, uh, this kind of uh, approach. Because after all, if you have this approach, just uh, currently the Republican, they can repeal the everything. So it's not going to work. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'd be happy to take that. Yeah. I, I respectfully disagree with your sense of the cause or the symptom. You know, Thomas Jefferson had it right in 1798. The single biggest point of leverage that exists in the Constitution for the growth of the federal government is this unlimited capacity to borrow. The ability to have this sort of magical illusion that you have unlimited resources to give every constituency what they want and to enhance your political career and to buy votes. That is the single most important factor in the federal government's growth. That uh, characteristic of the federal government leads to all other parchment barriers eventually eroding and falling away because the people trying to uphold those parchment barriers cannot outcompete in the political market a guy who gives everyone what they want to hear and everything they want to buy. So if you want to win on the parchment barrier, you've got to first take away this unlimited borrowing capacity that creates the illusion of unlimited resources that allows for the entitlement class in politics to win over and over and over again over time. Uh, but that's not the end of the fight. The fight is going to take on many other forms beyond that. Okay, next question. Sir. Thank you. Uh, Eric Bremen with New Way Advisors. And the question is, if you could please point out um, the key participants that you're targeting to get on board with a compact and to increase from three up to the necessary number, and, uh, and just briefly, the cost-benefit analysis that is presented to them when considering to push this forward versus take a pass. Yeah, and also, Nick, who, what are the three states? That okay. Have, yeah. Um, well, uh, it's 
Georgia, Alaska, and Mississippi. We, we targeted four states last year when it was, was with Goldwater, and it was one of 20 things on my plate. Uh, we got two out of four, which ain't bad for a new idea. This uh, session, uh, Compact for America's Action side, uh, is targeting 12 to 15 states. We've got capacity up to 15. We're moving, I think, at this point, eight states. Um, we've already prevailed in, in Mississippi this, this term, and we're looking to have some quick victories in the next several weeks. The pitch is this, folks, technology, technology. The, you know, the reality is, if you think of the compact as a ballot measure directed to governors, state legislators, and congressmen, the universe of people you need to persuade is about 100,000. Think of it as a small city. Think of the ability to target using social media and other forms of modern communication. Suddenly this thing becomes manageable and doable. Now, there's a, obviously additional challenges that you don't find in a ballot measure, which is the multiple committee assignments you could have. So this iter so it's, you, you have a population of 100,000 squared maybe, <laughs> or, you know, uh, so, but the point is, because of modern technology, you can really view the target persuasion class in a manageable number that, as we've seen in the states that do ballot measures, is, is very, very uh, doable. It's very plausible. I mean, and, and frankly, at a cost that is probably less than you would expect. I don't know if this is the right place for the full pitch, but I'll talk to you. Next question. All right, if we're out of questions, then we're going to break for lunch, uh, which is being provided uh, today, I'm pleased to say, by the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, please join us upstairs uh, in the George M. Yeager Conference Center on the second floor. There are restrooms up there. Uh, but before you do so, let's have a round of applause for our speakers today.